Beginning in verse 5, it says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. Literally in the Greek it reads, having come, I will heal him. I like that. Having come means his purpose for coming to the earth was to destroy the works of the devil just like John wrote to us. But Jesus answered, having come, I will heal him. The centurion answered, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof. But speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed. Notice the past tense. As thou hast believed. He didn't say and according to what you believe. He says, As thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Now there's a lot of things that we can glean from this uh, uh, incident, healing event, for the centurion's daughter. But... Oh, I, well, I'm sorry, the centurion's servant, not his daughter. That's a different story. But um, the thing, there's something about this that causes Jesus to marvel. He commends his faith. He recognizes that this is faith on a different level than anything that he's identified or had experience with among the people of Israel. And he talks about this kind of faith. Or a willingness to believe like this guy believes. That will provide entry for him into the kingdom of heaven. Where many of the Jews will not because they reject Jesus and, and uh, what he represents, what he did for us. But I want to ask you something. What did the centurion believe? He said, I've got soldiers under me and they do what I tell them to do. Come, go, whatever. The implication here. And I think it's a fair assessment. But the implication here is that just as the centurion recognizes or, or um, operates in his authority over his servants and over the soldiers under his command, Jesus had authority over sickness and disease. That's got to be what he's saying, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's no room for any other interpretation, is there? He doesn't tell us what he thinks about Jesus' authority, other than the implication from what he says. He doesn't tell us how he knows Jesus has authority. He doesn't tell us how he knows the authority comes from God. He doesn't say anything except, I understand how authority works. And Jesus marvels at that great faith. Now the centurion, in the verse where it says, where he told Jesus, I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. Clearly the centurion understands it's not about him. It's not about his condition. It's not about whether or not he's a good guy or a bad guy or whatever. One of the other gospel writers tell us that the centurion helped build the Jews a uh, uh, synagogue in Capernaum. 
And there's uh, one account, I, I'm not sure which one it is right now, but um, the, uh, the account says that the Jewish leaders that were following Jesus said, he's helped build us a synagogue. And because the blessing of God upon Abraham was, I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. They were making the case for why Jesus should help him. But the guy doesn't want Jesus to come to his house. It's unnecessary. He understands that authority bypasses or overcomes time and distance. And Jesus marvels at this kind of faith. Now turn with me to Mark chapter, well, before we get out of here, uh, let me read another couple of verses in Matthew 8. Verse 16, when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now, what, Mark, uh, what Matthew is referring to in verse 17 is the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 53. Specifically, it's Isaiah 53, 4. And Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. King James says, Griefs and sorrows, those words of sickness and pains. Surely he has borne our pains and carried our sickness. Yet we did esteem him stricken of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. So in Isaiah 53, 4, where it says, Surely... Certainly, without a shadow of a doubt, the work of the Messiah would be to carry away sickness and disease just as much as to do away with the sin nature of man. Now, I want you to look with me to uh, John chapter 5. I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong reference. I want you to look with me first to Mark chapter 11. We know the story of uh, Jesus cursing the fig tree, explaining to the disciples something about how faith works. But let's start reading in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he, speaking of Jesus, as he was walking in the temple, there came to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And they said unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave the authority to do these things? They've come to the place where they cannot deny the miracles. They just cannot deny the miracles, either in number or, or the miraculous circumstances of lepers being cleansed and cripples being healed and blind eyes being opened and so forth. They can't deny it. So they're trying to find out where did the authority come from? One of the things that I like about Jesus is Jesus did not make things easy for people. He required something of them. You remember in one place it says, Jesus taught many things by parables, so that seeing they might see and not understand, and hearing they might hear and not understand. Jesus didn't make it easy for people that were against him. He knew the ones that were for him. He knew the ones that were interested in him and what he was doing here on the earth for the right reasons. But everybody else, everybody outside of that circle, Jesus kind of left alone. He'd tell them the truth, take it or leave it. There it is. I think sometimes we talk so much about the grace of God and the mercy of God 
that we forget that Jesus gave everything of himself. And that's exactly what he wants back from you and me. We see in this modern church world how that people want to give little attention to God or to his word or the operation of faith that he describes, but they want God's best. Now, without question, God in his mercy will bail people out. But that really only works once. After that, he expects something from us. He expects us to grow spiritually. He expects us to grow in the knowledge of the word. And there's a lot of scriptures that tell us that through the knowledge of the word, the blessings of God come on us in greater and greater measure. Here Jesus is being questioned by the scribes and the priests and so forth. Who gave you this authority? They know he has it. They know that he couldn't heal the sick like he does or is doing without something special from God. So they want to know about it. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question and answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. You answer my question and I'll answer yours. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of men, they feared the people for all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said unto Jesus, we can't tell. And Jesus answering said unto them, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now he keeps talking in chapter 12. We won't look at it, but he keeps talking about, uh, or he tells a parable about a man that had a vineyard. And there were people, servants that were working the vineyard and, and the enemies of this man came and did them harm, destroyed them. So he sent more servants to work and take care of the vineyard. Same thing happened. They were killed too. He's talking about the way uh, Israel killed the prophets of the Old Testament so many times. And then finally, the owner of the vineyard says, I'll send my son. They'll respect him. But when the people saw that the son was sent, they said, if we do away with him, then it's ours forever. So he did. They did. They killed him. And the Pharisees or the scribes and the chief priests as it defines them. They understood that he was speaking this parable against them. So they got mad and wanted to take hold of Jesus and force him into some untenable position. But the people wouldn't let him because they had respect unto Jesus. So here's my question. What is the key to authority that brings us to the centurion's kind of faith? What is there to understand about authority that will enable us to get the same kind of results from God that the centurion got? Look with me to John chapter 5. You remember that John's gospel is the one that tells us chapters 14, 15, and 16 primarily. Some in chapter 17 too. But John's the one that tells us about how many times Jesus said that it was important for him to go away so that the Holy Ghost could come. He talked to them about it being better for them if he went away. Because if he didn't go away, the Holy Ghost couldn't come. The Comforter could not come. Now Jesus knows full well 
what we now understand, but the disciples did not. When Jesus talked about going away, that was the thing that made them sorrowful. And you can understand that from a physical or fleshly standpoint. They loved Jesus. Jesus, it had to be the coolest thing in the world to walk around with Jesus for three years and see all the stuff that happened, hear all the things that he said, even though they didn't get a lot of it. But that would have to be the coolest experience possible. And Jesus is talking about that experience ending. And he tells them that it's better for them if it ends. Now, that'd be a hard sell for the disciples, wouldn't it? And that's why they're sorrowful. That's why they don't pay attention to what Jesus is saying, for the most part at least. But Jesus says over and over again, it's better for you if I go away so the comforter can come. He can't come if I don't go away. The Holy Ghost could not be given. The new birth could not take place if Jesus just stayed on the earth. He had to pay the price. He had to suffer the punishment. He had to come under the judgment of God. He had to die spiritually. All those things were necessary for the better place, the better condition, the better life that Jesus is telling them will result as a, uh, will come as a result of the Holy Ghost in filling them. John chapter 5, verse 25. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now, he's got to be talking about the, the saints in the Old Testament saints in paradise. He's got to be talking about people that have gone on. What other dead would there be? He's not talking about the spiritually dead. He's talking about those that died without a redeemer and were therefore placed in a holding Room, place, I don't know, what would paradise be called? A temporary place until he could finally pay the price for the remission of sins. Tell those that are in bondage, even though they believed in the law, even though they were looking for the Messiah, tell them that were in bondage, he was the guy, he was the one, and then usher them into heaven with himself, along with himself before the throne of God. He's got to be talking about them. There's no other dead that he could be referring to. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. Jesus is saying, I've got the same life that God has. I've got the life of God in me, that's just as real and just the same thing as the eternal life that God has or is. Do you see that? Same quality of life, same blessings, same benefits. Notice verse 27. He says, just as God has given to the Son to have life in himself, it says God has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Because he's the son of man. Now this plays back into what Jesus told them by parable in Mark chapter 12. Where they asked him the question, whose authority do you have? Or who gave you this authority? And he asked them about John the Baptist and they won't answer. They know what they think, they're just not going to answer. So when Jesus tells the parable, he's identifying himself. He's identifying his source of authority. 
He's saying, I have authority from my father, who was the owner of the vineyard in the parable. When he talked about John, he identified that John was preaching a baptism of repentance. Paul said this. When Paul came to, uh, uh, where was it, Philippi? First time he's there, he found people washing clothes down at the riverside. And he thought they were believers because of their lives and the way that they conducted themselves. He thought that they were saved. And so he asked them if they'd heard of the Holy Ghost. And they said, we don't know what the Holy Ghost is. So then he asked them, under what then are you baptized? Again, he's thinking they're saved. He's thinking they've heard of Jesus and have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. And they say under John's baptism. And Paul goes on to say, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. Which means it's a baptism of God. I'm sorry, it means it's a baptism of men, not a baptism of God. Nobody was saved, ever has been saved by water baptism. But the ministry of John the Baptist was of men. Now that's what the Jews were afraid to answer. That's what they thought, or what they wanted to think at least. But that's what they were afraid to answer because they thought the people would rise up due to the respect that they had for John the Baptist before he was killed. But Jesus plainly tells them, well, plainly to us, probably wasn't too plain for them. But we understand because we can look backwards and see the things that God has done for us. We can understand that Jesus was saying that the John the Baptist's ministry was of men. But it wasn't just any old thing that men could do. John the Baptist was certainly anointed of God. So John the Baptist's source of authority was as a man anointed of the Holy Ghost. And that's exactly what Jesus says of himself. Remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. He finds a place in Isaiah, Isaiah 61 to us. He finds a place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. And then he tells what he's anointed to do. Heal the brokenhearted preach recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty to them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus knows that he's anointed for a purpose. And he wasn't shy about telling people it wasn't him doing the works. Now that's something we have a hard time dividing between. But it's really important that we do. When Jesus said, when Jesus preached, and, and it had to be to the truth, He's not going to lie to us. If he lied to us, then he wasn't a worthy sacrifice. He was a sinner. So we see clearly where Jesus said over and over again, it's not me doing the works, it's the Father in me. What does he mean? Does he mean the life of God in him is doing the works? No, he means the the anointing of the Holy Ghost is what empowers him to do them. Now, before we go any further, think back to the centurion. Did the centurion say anything about the power of God or the source of the power of God or anything like that? He doesn't have to preach to Jesus about all the stuff that he knows. We don't know how much he's heard of Jesus other than the fact that Jesus is healing the sick. If it wasn't for that, there would be no reason for him to go to try to get help for his servant. So we know that he knows that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. He knows what he's asking of Jesus is possible. 
but it doesn't tell us anything else. So Jesus is saying that because of the life of God in him, he's sent to the earth to execute judgment. Now here's the judgment I mean. A lot of times the word judgment freaks people out and they get stuck on it. But you remember over in 1 John chapter 3, it says, for this purpose was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's the judgment Jesus is talking about. Jesus didn't come to judge people. He's come to execute judgment on the devil and all of the devil's works. Well, we see from his life and his ministry that those works certainly included healing the sick or the works that Jesus came to destroy was sickness, physical sickness in the body. We see that in, in order for Jesus to fulfill what Isaiah 53, 4, and 5 tells us, that he was obligated, not like it's a chore just because it's the way God is. He was obligated to heal all that were sick. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus never left a sick person. You remember in Nazareth, they didn't receive what he said about himself. They didn't accept the fact that he was the Son of God, anointed of the Holy Ghost. So there must have been a lot of people that were sick in that place because it says, due to their unbelief, he could there do no mighty work. No blind eyes opened, no deaf people healed, no cripples walked. The only thing he was able to do is get a couple of people with minor ailments healed. And that was not because he wasn't anointed. He just told them that he was anointed. But that was because they refused to believe. They refused to put faith in him like the centurion did. So Jesus came to execute judgment and is right. The ability that he had to execute judgment, he said, was because he was the son of man. Not because he's the son of God, but because he was a human being on the earth. Folks, remember the overriding truth, and that is God created man for the purpose of having and exercising authority in the earth. If Jesus was not fully human, then he would not have been a candidate to exercise authority on the earth. That was given to men. That's why Jesus had to be born the way that he was. That's why it was necessary for all these things to take place and the prophecies of the virgin birth to come to pass. Because if Jesus wasn't really a human being, if he was not a bona fide human being, he had no right and no authority in the earth to do the work that he was sent to do. The disciples finally understood that. You remember in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, when Peter finally makes it down to Cornelius' household. You remember the story how Cornelius saw a vision of an angel that told him to send to Joppa for where Peter was. Peter falls into a trance on the housetop waiting for lunch to get ready. He sees the, this uh, sheet held at four corners with all kinds of beasts and animals, both clean and unclean. And there's a voice in this vision that says, rise, slay, and eat. And he says, not so, Lord. I'll not eat anything unclean. He's still trying to live by the law of Moses. And this happens three times, and each time the Lord answered, don't call common or unclean what I have cleansed. That's where God's talking about the blood of Jesus making an entry for the Jews and the Gentiles. So Peter goes down to Cornelius' household. He hears the story of Cornelius having seen the angel. 
he knows about the vision that he experienced. He finally comes to understand that he's not, that God wasn't in that vision. God wasn't talking about eating animals. He was talking about the Gentiles having the accessibility of the finished work of Jesus, just like the Jews. So he says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. He's summarizing Jesus' ministry, and he points out the anointing. He emphasizes the anointing. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good and healing all that were, uh, healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with it. It tells us right there everything you need to know about sickness and disease. It's always of the devil. And God has anointed Jesus to bring healing for our bodies. Now, some people might say, well, that was just for Jesus in his earthly ministry. It doesn't work that way now. But if that's true, then that means Jesus has changed. And Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the best evidence that we have, the unchanging evidence that we have, if we believe the Bible is true, if we believe God is who he says he is, the best evidence we have for healing and God's will concerning healing is to look at the healing that Jesus performed when he was here on the earth. If he was a healer then, he has to be a healer now. If it was God's will to heal the sick when Jesus was here on the earth, it's God's will to heal the sick now. God doesn't change. Neither does Jesus change. The work of the Holy Ghost hasn't changed. The Holy Ghost anointed Jesus to heal the sick when he was here on the earth. And so if he's eternal and unchanging just like God and Jesus are, then he's still doing the same work. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read the first three verses. Paul, after talking about in chapter 7 his conflict or the conflict between his spirit and his body, talked about how he failed so many times stumbled into sin and he recognized that he needed a deliverer. Now he's already saved. He's already filled with the Holy Ghost. But he needs a deliverer to be able to help him overcome his body. So he comes to this conclusion concerning deliverance. He says in Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus... Please note that phrase. There is a spiritual law that governs us now. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, what is the law of sin and death? Well, it certainly includes the, the uh, curse of the law. It certainly includes what Deuteronomy 28 talks about, how that poverty and sickness and disease are a result of sin entering in the world. We know that spiritual death was the result of Adam and Eve's transgression in the Garden of Eden. So we were held in bondage by the law of sin and death. There's nothing we could do to get out of it, but not now. Now that Jesus has become the Lord of our lives, there's a spiritual law that overcomes the, the spiritual law of sin and death. The spiritual law of the, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has freed us from that. Now here's Jesus again doing the same work that John talked about. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus destroyed the works of the devil by his work on the cross. He showed us in three years of ministry the character and the nature of God. He showed us the will of God. 
He showed us what God wanted to do. And he even showed us how it could be hindered or hampered through unbelief. Jesus showed us all these things as a father. And through the shedding of his blood, there's a new spiritual law. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which makes us free from the law of sin and death. Now notice verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. In other words, it's saying only Jesus could be a spotless sacrifice, a worthy sacrifice. Man can't because he's governed by that law of sin and death. But Jesus being born of a virgin bypassed the law of sin and death. And he was born into this earth righteous. There was no age of accountability for Jesus. There was never a point where he stumbled and fell. So Jesus was the epitome of what God wanted Adam and Eve to be and continue to be in the Garden of Eden. So notice he says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, a better translation says as a substitute for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Now notice that phrase, condemned sin in the flesh. That's Jesus executing judgment. The judgment was passed upon sin and death, not upon mankind. If God was looking for a reason or a good excuse to kill mankind, we wouldn't be here. But notice what Jesus did. Jesus exercised judgment. Again, John chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus said, my father is given, I've been given the same life as my father, and he's given me authority to execute judgment because I'm the son of man, because I'm a human being, anointed of the Holy Ghost without question, but a human being. And as that sacrifice for us, spotless, sinless, precious blood was shed for the remission of sins once and for all, and that's what the Bible calls condemning sin in the flesh. For the first time ever, God was able to pass judgment on sin and bypass the people. The only other place, the only other way that that even came close to happening was when Israel on the Day of Atonement each year would lay the sins, pronounce the sins of the people on the head of a goat and lead him out into the wilderness to be judged or destroyed. But Jesus executed judgment by condemning sin in the flesh. So what does that mean? Well, we know in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, talking about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, it says, For God caused Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So here's my question. Everything's been leading up to this. Remember the centurion? What would the centurion, the man that understood authority, the man that put himself in a position for Jesus to marvel at his faith, what would the centurion do if he lived after Jesus was crucified? Jesus doesn't get upset because he oversteps. Jesus doesn't get upset because he assumes that God will help him or help his servant. 
Jesus rather commends him for taking hold of something that the Jews in his experience, at least his experience up to that point, would not take hold of. But what if you lived in our day? What if you lived in the day where he couldn't get to Jesus and speak to him personally, face to face? How would the centurion, with an understanding of authority, how would he operate today? Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. I want you to see verse 17. I hope you're able to see it in a different light now. Romans 5, 17, it says, For if, this word if is the word since. For since by one man's offense, talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden. If since by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more, that's the law of sin and death that Jesus freed us from, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Folks, I want you to understand something. Righteousness is not just a position. See, we can talk about certain things that are told to us in the Scripture and provides us a, a, a God's eye view of a position that we hold. Like, for example, the Bible says we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Well, that's not physical. It means positionally we are. But not literally. Not practically. But righteousness is not like that. Righteousness is a means, it's a vehicle for reigning in life. For exercising authority. Righteousness is a weapon. It's the condition that we've been made through the new birth. It's the condition that we've been made because of the precious blood of Jesus. Spotless, sinless blood that was shed for us. Righteousness is a relationship, a closeness and a relationship with God just like Jesus had. And as such, Jesus used his relationship with his father as a weapon to destroy the works of the devil. And the Bible tells us that we can do the same thing. Since the law of sin and death came into the world because of Adam's transgression, much more. Much more. Whenever that phrase much more is used in the scriptures, it's trying to make a comparison. But the literal meaning of the words defines that that comparison really shouldn't be made. In other words, it's talking about the grace of God being so much more than sin or the law of sin and death that it really shouldn't even be compared. That's what those words mean. Now, they need to be compared so that we understand. But even in making the comparison, particularly Paul, some of the other writers too, but particularly Paul, gives us a glimpse that whatever the devil was doing is so far beneath what God did. The power of God released was so much greater than the law of sin and death that it absolutely obliterated it. And Paul tells us by the Holy Ghost, since we know that sin and death passed upon all mankind through Adam's sin, but now, now that we've been made righteous, 
that righteousness is designed to enable us to reign in life, to enable us to exercise authority, which to our religious thinking and our religious minds might seem too great a step to take. But just as Jesus was encouraged by the centurion's willingness to believe and to act on that belief, we've got that same place. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 in the Garden of Gethsemane after the Lord's Supper. Jesus prayed that God would give us the same place that he had with the Father. He's not praying that for himself. He prays for himself that after the work of redemption is done and completed, he prays that God would give him back the glory and the honor that he had with him before the worlds began. He wants the, the, the power, the position, the glory back that he laid aside to come to the earth. Now that glory and that power is beyond anything the Bible tells us is available for us. But Jesus himself prayed that we would have the same glory in our relationship through the new birth. Relationship with God through the new birth. Just as Jesus had when he was here on the earth. What would the centurion do if he had been made righteous by the blood of Jesus? How would he have acted? How would he have handled things? I think we can be pretty sure that he wouldn't have gone to look to see if it was the will of God. He had to have clarity on certain things that the church still struggles with today. He had to know that sickness was never of God. He had to know that it was a work and a tool of the enemy. Man, that beats most Christians just right there, doesn't it? He didn't question like the leper did a few verses before, the beginning of, Mark, uh, of Matthew chapter 8. He didn't question like the lepers did, the leper did, about if it was God's will to heal. Those questions weren't even on his radar. Or maybe he had already considered those and come to a conclusion. Either way, he put himself in a position to receive from God. What did he do that put him in that elevated position where Jesus marveled at his faith? He believed in the righteousness of God. He believed that that righteousness of God that was on display in Jesus' life was a sufficient weapon to break the power of the devil over his servant. Folks, because we've been made righteous, we're not bound by anything. We're not bound by the law of sin and death. Everybody would agree that the law of sin and death would have to include sickness and disease, wouldn't it? No sickness or disease showed up until Adam sinned. It certainly wasn't present in the earth when God made the earth, or remade the earth, more accurately. There was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind in any way whatsoever. Until he fell. Then the law of sin and death began to reign. But it sure shouldn't reign over us. It's still at work in the earth, certainly. But they which have received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life.
there should be no work of the enemy under any circumstances or for any reason that should be able to hold us back. Doesn't mean we won't trip and fall. Doesn't mean we won't stumble into sin. That's what Paul was lamenting in Romans chapter 7. He said, I'm stumbling a whole lot more than I want to. I catch myself following my flesh and the urges of my flesh instead of doing what I know is right from my heart. How am I going to be delivered from this conflict? By knowing there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Because we've been made righteous. It's not just the actions of our flesh that count. It's the desires of our heart. Now granted, as we grow in God and grow in the knowledge of his word, grow in the knowledge of what belongs to us, we should go through life stumbling less and less, fewer and fewer times. And I don't know anything that makes that more real than understanding that we're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Folks, your weapon, your righteousness, is a weapon against the enemy. I think that's one reason why the devil spends so much time trying to tell us how unworthy we are. Or what a bad example of a Christian we are. Or remind us of the mistakes that we make. He knows what most church people don't seem to know. And that is that our mistakes never stop us. Our mistakes are not held against us. There literally is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. You are more than worthy to receive healing from the Lord. I don't care if your sickness has been brought on by sin. The Bible says that the same power that heals the sick forgives sin. Our mistakes can never stop us. But who we are, being the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, who we really are, I'm not just trying to use churchy phrases or speak Christianese in some way, but the knowledge of who we really are because of the sacrifice of Jesus is a weapon we can use against the devil every time. We're God's property. We're God's possession. And we can chase the devil off in any and every area of life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for the work that you sent Jesus to do. And Jesus, we thank you as our Savior for being willing to pay the price. We now understand what your disciples didn't. That it was better for us that you went away to the Father. That you paid the price for sin and death. It's better for us because now we can enjoy the life of God and your righteousness and the indwelling presence of the Holy Ghost that we wouldn't have known about any other way. We thank you for making us righteous, Lord. We thank you for the work that you did. We thank you that our righteousness, the reality of our righteousness, brings the knowledge that we are completely off limits to the devil. Satan, we serve notice on you. By the authority of the word of God, we exercise our authority to break your hold over our lives and our bodies. Sickness, you've got to go. 
we will not be held in bondage to any part of the law of sin and death. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, that life that brings us righteousness and makes us righteous, has set us free from that law of sin and death. We will ever be free. We will always be free. So sickness, you must go. We thank you, Lord. We worship you and we magnify your holy name. Thank you for your great plan of redemption, Father. And thank you for showing us what you did. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.